Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Studies show that people who eat breakfast have overall better nutrition, improved cognitive functioning, and are less likely to be overweight. Yet, up to 50% of school-age children eat cereal for breakfast, and marketers spend enormous amounts of money to entice parents and children to their brand. How much nutritional value is present in these cereals? Welcome to a special segment on children's health. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Marlene Schwartz, Deputy Director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale. Dr. Schwartz's research bridges the fields of eating disorders and obesity and is focused on how home environments, communities, and school landscapes shape the eating attitudes and behaviors of children. She frequently collaborates on local state projects with the Connecticut State Department of Education and recently completed a large research study examining the effectiveness of an intervention to remove unhealthy beverages and snacks from schools. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Marlene, how did you become interested in this work? Well, it really comes from two sources. One is my work as a clinician for about 10 years treating patients with eating disorders and obesity. And the other is my experience as a mother. I have three small children, all girls, and I find that it's really challenging to figure out how to feed them in a healthful way. Boy, isn't that the truth? I had all these lofty ideas about how to feed children until I actually had them. (laughs) I know. It's easier in theory than in practice. It seems like the world conspires against you at every turn sometimes, doesn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. So tell us about your research. Well, the cereal study was really inspired by my surprise in the grocery store aisle when it seemed like cereals that I'd always thought were pretty much unhealthy suddenly had claims on them, making them look like they were healthy choices. Mm. So, for example, you know, Frosted Flakes or, you know, Cocoa Krispies seem to say things like whole grain or reduced sugar or low fat. And my worry was that parents might see those labels and think that, indeed, these foods were now good choices for their children. So that's why we decided to do the study. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the study in particular. Well, what we did is pretty straightforward. We went to the grocery store and bought every single cereal that was there and then followed up online by getting the nutrition information for all cereals made by Kellogg's, Post, General Mills, and Quaker. And then what we did is we coded them as either being marketed towards children or marketed towards adults, which was pretty easy. Generally, children's Cereals have cartoon characters and toys in the box and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then what we did is we compared the nutritional value of those cereals that were marketed towards children to those that were marketed towards adults. And what we found was that the children's cereals were significantly worse nutritionally. They had more sugar. They tended to have more calories. And they basically were lower in fiber, lower in protein, so pretty much the exact opposite of what you would want in a breakfast food. In every possible dimension. Right, exactly. So the point we were really trying to make is that it isn't that cereal companies don't know how to make better products. They obviously do. But for some reason, they take their worst products, and those are the ones that they market to children. Mm -hmm. So the purpose of the study was to draw people's attention to this and actually put some pressure on the industry to try to improve the quality of the cereals that they market to kids. Is there any hope that that might actually happen? Well, I have some hope, although I'm not 
too sure if they'll be able to respond in the way we want. Basically, what we found was they make attempts to make the cereals healthier, so the you know decreasing the sugar or using whole grains. But what we found in our study was that the cereals that had those types of nutrient or health claims really were no better off overall than the cereals that didn't. So it seemed that they could make them look better sort of Mm -hmm. on the box, but Mm -hmm. in fact, they really weren't better products. My hope is that they will start truly decreasing the amount of sugar in the cereals and that they could maybe do it more gradually over time so that people don't quite notice a sudden shift. (laughs) And there's some indication that that might be happening. Now, what about the parents who say, well, I know these cereals aren't the greatest, but it's better than nothing? Well, I think that that's probably true. It probably is better than nothing. I think that, you know, breakfast is certainly something that's been shown to be important for children and, you know, having something in your stomach when you go off to school. But I would really like to see parents, you know, try a little bit harder to have a healthier breakfast for their kids. Okay. So given that, what should we advise our pediatric patients to eat for breakfast? Or better yet, what should we advise their parents to serve them for breakfast? Well, I think that there are some good cereals out there for kids, and I just encourage people to read the labels and really find a cereal that is high in fiber and low in sugar. And if you focus on those two nutrients, because sometimes it's overwhelming to look at all of the information, but if you find something where the fiber and the sugar are at least close to each other in numbers, or even if there's more fiber than sugar, then you have a cereal that is really going to provide a good breakfast. And then I also encourage parents if they're going to pick a cereal that isn't as sweet, to use fruit as a way to make the cereal taste better. So to cut up strawberries or put banana or something like that into your child's bowl. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Marlene Schwartz, the recipient of two grants from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Healthy Eating Research Program. We are discussing the nutritional value, or lack thereof, of children's cereal. Now, Dr. Schwartz, you also have done studies on looking at how to increase healthy eating in kids. So I'm I'm thinking in particular of the fruit consumption study. Well, that study was definitely inspired by a visit to my children's school's cafeteria. And what I noticed is that as the children went through the line to get their lunch, the women working in the cafeteria would put the main dish on their tray. So whether it was the hamburger and then the bun or whatever the starch was would also go directly on their tray. And then the children were allowed to choose a fruit, a vegetable, and a milk if they wanted to. And what I noticed was that a lot of the children would choose the milk and would simply walk right past the fruit and the vegetable. So I looked into this and found out that the USDA has a policy called offer versus serve. And essentially, schools can put some things just available for the children, and the children don't have to take them. They only need to take three of the five components of the school lunch. So I thought to myself that if they served the fruit instead of just left it there and sort of up to the child whether or not he or she wanted to take it, that perhaps the kids would be likely to eat it. And I thought that because I was familiar with some research by Brian Wansink where he found basically people eat what's in front of them. And the easier it is for you to get your hands on something, the more likely you are to eat it. 
So the study was pretty straightforward. We did an intervention in one elementary school where the people working in the cafeteria gave the children a verbal prompt, and they said, would you like fruit or juice? Because both of those count as a fruit serving. And the implication is you're taking one or the other, so which one would you Mm -hmm. like? So the kids still had a choice, but the idea was that they were going to take a fruit serving. In the other school, we left things the way they were so the kids could take it or leave it. And what we found was when we had the verbal prompt, nearly 100% of the kids ended up with either fruit or juice on their trays and that the majority of them went ahead and ate it. And the proportion that ate the fruit on their tray from the intervention school was actually exactly the same as the school where they had the choice. So in other words, you're just as likely to eat it if it's served to you as you would be if you took it voluntarily. And that was really the surprise message in this study. So bottom line, again, I'm thinking of primary care docs who may be listening to this show on what to tell parents about getting kids to eat better. Well, it sounds a little bit contradictory, but I would say don't ask, just serve. <laughs> so, you know, what I do, and this is just personal from my own experience as a parent, is I will, you know, peel some carrots or put some grapes in a bowl and I will stick it on the kitchen mm-hmm, table. Mm-hmm. So the minute my children come in the house, it's right there because I know that they'll be hungry and they're going to want to grab something. And if that's available and ready to go, they're likely to grab it. The other way to handle it would be to have your children come in and say, well, what would you like for a snack? And then you get into a whole negotiation about whether they want fruit, vegetable, or something else. And a lot of times kids will pick the something else. So I found that this really, at least for my kids, works as a way to promote fruit and vegetable consumption because I'm simply making it the easy option. It's sort of the default snack. And so it has increased their consumption. Yeah, we do something similar in our house. And what I've started doing for dinner and vegetables is like, you're going to eat a vegetable. I don't care which one it is. So you can pick one or I can serve it to you uh, and you don't get a choice. And sure enough, they'll eat a vegetable that way. Yeah, I do the same thing. And I really feel that parents have been given some mixed messages about how to feed their children. And in some ways, we've taken the whole idea of choice a little bit too far with our kids. Mm -hmm. I think we are responsible for teaching our children what a balanced meal looks like. And, you know, you hear stories of parents who make, you know, three different meals because this kid won't eat one thing and this other child won't eat something else. And I just think that that's gotten a little extreme and we need to go take a step back and really create a balanced meal and then serve it. And if your child doesn't like it, then, you know, that's what's for dinner. Mm -hmm, (laughs) So mm -hmm. you have to kind of let the natural consequences of hunger kick in and encourage your child to eat what's being served. Mm -hmm. So what's next in your research, Dr. Schwartz? Well, we're just finishing up a study looking at school wellness policies, which are written policies on nutrition and physical activity that were required for all school districts in the country that participate in the National School Lunch Program. So these were designed to be put into place in the 2006-2007 school year, and it was a little bit controversial because the requirement from the federal law was that the districts needed to write a policy, but they didn't necessarily provide any rules as to what the policy had to say. So theoretically, you could write a policy and say, our policy is to serve everything. So our study was designed to look at all of the policies that were created in Connecticut and see if we could predict which districts had stronger policies and what some of the associations were with having strong or weak policies. Any guesses to what the outcome is going to be? Well, we started to look at the data, and what we found that really surprised us 
was that some of the larger sort of inner city, lower socioeconomic status districts had the strongest policies, Mm -hmm. which was exactly the opposite of what we predicted. We really thought that the districts with the strongest policies would be the ones, you know, with parents who were more involved, who had the time and energy and resources, you know, to really get connected with the committee and really push to have stronger guidelines. But in fact, that wasn't the case. It seemed like these big cities really did take this task much more seriously, and perhaps because they saw the problem of childhood obesity as being a bigger issue in their districts, which is probably true. And so they really seemed to use this as an opportunity to create some very good policies. Wow. Great work. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Sure. We've been talking with Dr. Marlene Schwartz, the Deputy Director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at reachmd.com. If you register with the promo code RADIO, you'll receive six months free streaming for your home or your office. If you have comments or suggestions or questions, please call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening.